Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is kind of a simulcast. I talked to Mike Moynihan. You'll see from the opening comments of this. This is on his YouTube channel and podcast channel of Cardboard Legends. This is a reduced, abridged form because I'm trying to stay within 15 minutes. This was a further discussion about the 48 or 49 or 48-49 Leaf Baseball, as it's been known variously over the years. But thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dave Berg, Blue Jacket 66, for provoking this interesting conversation that sheds further light on a really iconic set. There's some things on an episode that I did a few weeks ago about the 49 Leaf baseball set with Dave Berg, one of my great friends, Blue Jacket 66. And Dr. Beckett reached out and he said, Mike, I'd like to add to that discussion. Truly one of the most iconic sets of all time, the 49 Leaf baseball set. I especially like the one with Dave. When I was doing the price guides and doing all this research, I was a serious collector, a serious dealer, but I had a lot of help from a lot of people. But the Leaf cards are cards that I personally collected, even though I had other contributors like Ted Zanadakis, who's awesome, specialized in everything 48, 49, 50, because he's a little bit older than me. And he had firsthand knowledge. I tried to get to the guys that had firsthand knowledge. But Dave would have been an awesome contributor if I were still doing that, because he rolls up his sleeves and he tries to figure things out. And the hobby needs that. In the early mid-70s, you weren't on the map as a collector until you finished your 52 top set. After you finished your run of tops and Bowmans, then you went after Leaf. You went after Stallmeyers and Redman and Glendale Meats and Dandy Potato Chips and all these food issues. And you had an episode about that stuff, too, with John Mangini. That was really entertaining because some of the stuff, if it's tops, everybody collected it. But Leaf, not everybody collected it. Not everybody even knew when I got started what a complete set was. They were just figuring out that, hey, this is 98 cards. There's an album that has 168 slots in it, and the numbers go up to 168. So what's going on? I don't think they were being dishonest. They're allowed to do a skip-numbered set. And I think kids pretty much figured that out. If they bought the box or they compared with their buddies, the first series are the 49 I won't say easier, but the non-short printed cards. And they were printed all on one sheet. There were no high number sheets. There were two sheets. There was a sheet that is the 49 easier numbers. And then there were the 49 short prints, which are extremely tough. They weren't even known until the 70s and 80s. They were rumored some of those to exist. Somebody had them, but again, it was a very private hobby. And I completed that set as a collector, and that's to great fanfare in the industry. I remember talking to Frank Nagy. I'm not even sure he had a complete set of it. I picked him up on buying trips in the Midwest and all that. So with respect to 49 Leaf, the short prints absolutely were sold and distributed in 1949, mostly 49 copyright. No question, that second sheet was done afterwards and way more limited distribution, limited supply, all that stuff. Where I differ with Dave is that having submitted a lot of things for copyright myself, you can't submit an idea for copyright. You have to submit a thing for copyright. You have to submit your material with your application. Meaning like the final product? Tangible. 
It's okay. in the copyright law. It has to be something tangible. It can't be ethereal. Dave correctly points out that several of them mention things that happened during the 48th season. I agree with that. Okay. That doesn't mean it can't be a late 48 set. There is nothing on the card backs that talks about 1949. You have okay. some late trades as late as December of 1948 that result in airbrushed fronts of a few of the cards. All of those are the short prints that were to me the later print, the last 49 to be printed. I think Leaf also wanted to print another 70 six months later to fill out the album. I don't think they were trying to cheat anybody that they had this album of 168 cards. They had missing numbers. I think they were intending to fill them out. Dave suggests there was legal pressure put on Leaf, that Bowman may have been jealous. I've heard that, but I don't have any evidence to that effect. In fact, the evidence to the other side would be that Bowman would be overjoyed that Leaf put out such a poor quality control set that did so poorly in the marketplace. Leaf ran out of gas on its own. I don't think they got a cease and desist because why did they stop football? Why did they stop boxing? In fact, I think they did better with their boxing than they did their baseball. The football even, which is not widely produced, but they have two years worth of football. And Bowman was doing football. So I don't think Bowman was nervous about this small candy company in Illinois or wherever they were at that time doing what probably, I agree, was more of a regional thing. All the East Coast collectors, they'd never seen him. So the fact that I was in Bowling Green in the 70s, he never found a lot of them. But when you found him, so I was able to put together a set. I don't remember what the last card I got was. And then I was friends with John Ramirez, who, if you really want to have an authority on, he has not only a complete set, I think he has all the color variations. He was in the Detroit area at the time. I thought, that's cool. If you're an advanced collector and you get all the cards, then what do you do? You start getting them autographed or you start getting color variations. Everybody wants the challenge. And so I did that. So I've got the Purple Musial. Very limited. Now, I've heard theories about how that happened, that maybe Leaf was trying to save money. That's not how printing works. Saving money on printing is keeping the presses running, not letting them stop. Your printer attached to your computer, there are diagnostics with it. It has a warning light or it kicks out if you're running low or out of ink. The big presses in the late 40s, they didn't have that. It was line of sight. That's why they had press operators. They had to see that the ink was running low, and yet they would get in trouble if they stopped the press. So they either had to add ink on the fly, and I'm not sure how that would be done, but there were at least four ink wells. They had to be monitoring all of them. There's the blue and the red and the yellow and the black. And if any of them runs low, they don't all run at the same uh, intensity. Right. There's a screening of how much blue and how much yellow and how much red each thing gets. And if it gets less blue and more red, it's going to be more purplish. If it gets uh, the full blue, but not the black that sometimes is made for the darker blue, it comes out as lighter blue. So all of these color variations can be explained by a printing press operator that was maybe not paying attention or more concerned about keeping the presses running than worrying about the quality control being a little bit bad. The quality control was bad on so many levels. I also heard a theory that the ink bleed, the ghosting from the back, 
was because they stacked the sheets too soon. Well, that's not true because sheets stack immediately anyway. What is probably true is that pressure was applied to that stack and it got too heavy so that the sheets on the bottom, that pressure provided an ink transfer. Same thing with the print lines. So it wouldn't be the whole stack. Baseball card sheets, they stack them up 500 sheets high. At the bottom, there's more pressure than at the top. And they're not wet, but they're not completely cured sometimes either. And so that's my theory on that. We're in 2022 now, right? You were doing a lot of this research in the mid-70s, late-70s. You mentioned people that have, quote-unquote, firsthand knowledge. That is, you were talking to guys that actually opened the packs in 1948, 1949, whenever it was. And to me, that's first. I did it. I opened these packs. I can tell you when I did it. Did you ever talk to anyone that gave you that firsthand knowledge? Hey, I opened these in late November 1948. No, I don't have any evidence that the cards were distributed in 48, other than the fact that they have 48 copyrights on them. And there's no mention of 49 on the front. And so that first series, it's possible, especially since it was submitted for copyright in 48. And it says 48 on the back. I probably tentatively agree with Dave in the sense that it's probably a 49 set. But the fact that it says 48, the fact that the hobby has accepted it as 48, the fact that I was in a position of leadership in the hobby, for me to change that to 49, it's not that I'm going to get a lawsuit from anybody that has 48 leaf musials and spawns, but it would just wreak havoc in their expectation that if everything is 1948, then the leaf spawn and musial are legitimate rookie cards and not preempted by their 48 moments. Preserving that continuity to pull the rug out from under people when they have 48 copyrights on the back. I had to make the decision. So it wasn't made in a vacuum. It was a, a lesser of evils. I think my old company has changed it now to just 1949. But to me, it's a 4849 leaf set. A copyrights in 48 and 49. Second series, definitely 49. First series, probably in 49. But I'm not willing to definitively say there wasn't some card out there in 48. Why isn't there mention of Babe Ruth's death? He died in August, and that was huge news. Is it possible that there were some cards distributed and issued, sold in late 1948? They would carry that over. The first sheet cards would still have been sold in 1949 as well. Yes, true. Yes. I really think what happened is that they printed up a sheet or two and gave them to the Library of Congress for uh, that first sheet and said, this is what we're doing. We want to get copyright protection because we've got competitors and we want to stake our claim. We don't want anybody copying our stuff. Okay. But I really don't think they came out until March, but I've got to allow for the possibility. If you were a collector in the fifties or sixties and you turn over the card, it looks like a 1948 card for a lot of those first series guys. There's an ultra-modern comparison. Panini was issuing football sets a year after the season that they were issuing them for and still calling them 2021, whatever it well, was. Well, you flip it over on the back and you look at what the stats are. What seasons does it talk about? So that means it's either late in that season or slightly after that season or the following spring. And right. in Leaf's case, I've heard of the people that opened them and talked about it in their neighborhood, Ted Zanaday, they came out in March of 49. I'm just leaving out the possibility that there was something going on in 48 
that in my mind gives the benefit of the doubt to the traditional nomenclature for that set. After that episode with Dave, I received several direct messages through Instagram. One person in particular sent me dad's diary. I had him on my podcast. Okay. A year and a half ago. In his diary, it talks about they just came out and it was in March. Ted Zanadakis would say the same thing, who I had a lot of contact with. Nobody has told me about opening a short printed pack that probably would have been late summer, perhaps. And whether it was dead on arrival, that dog didn't hunt. Okay. The first series is not even very plentiful, the non short prints. I think that the national rollout was March of 49. You obviously have a love for the set, you collected the entire set. I love the set. It was an amazing challenge. When I started, there really weren't that many checklist books that you really could trust. Jefferson Burdick, I don't know that he was somebody I tried to emulate, but the similarity is that he was an advanced, serious collector. When he's doing his American card catalog, he's getting contributions from these other outstanding collectors out there too. But he had the cards. Substantially, he had the cards. He didn't have these. And he passed away in 63. That's 14 years after these cards. And they still didn't even know about all the short prints. What are some of your favorites from that set that you love? Satchel Page, for sure. Yeah, Satchel Who Page. doesn't love the Satchel Page? But again, the color variations, having the vanilla DiMaggio and the purple Musial, even the light blue Musial, and almost all of them. You can trace that back to where the ink ran out, maybe, or got really low so it wasn't fully applied because the colors are all made by the combination of inks. The Hermansky, if you look at the original uncut sheet, there's still photos of them. I've seen them. In the bottom right corner is the eye of Hermansky, the eye that is missing. And that happens in printing. When you get into the corners, maybe the ink didn't get out there or there wasn't the proper pressure on that part of the form. Very tough variation. It's probably a printing defect, but you can see it with Hermansk and Hermansky. You don't see any of that with the short prints. There's no variations. They're just all pretty much bad quality. I collected the wrong back. So I've got a feller with a Enos Slaughter back, upside down Enos Slaughter. And I think I've got the Slaughter with the feller on the back upside down too. This is what advanced collectors did. Once you got the mainstream stuff, you went toward leaf and these others, more regional issues.